I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Well, it's good to be back. I just returned from three and a half weeks in the UK, where I preached in six or seven churches and a couple conferences and enjoyed time of ministry, uh, mostly with Reformed Baptist pastors and churches sort of loosely connected with the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, But back in the swing of things here in Douglasville and excited about what the Lord is doing through G3 Ministries, in this episode of the podcast, I'd like to discuss some of the feedback and response to my article on why you should not sing Hillsong, Bethel, Jesus Culture, and Elevation. There's been a lot of good online discussion uh, as a result of that article. Uh, That article has received now over 80,000 views and lots of discussion happening, and so I'd like to respond to some of those things. But first, I want to let you know about some upcoming events as well as books. I will be in May at the Church and Family Life Conference uh, in North Carolina, May 19th through 22. This is a fantastic conference. Uh, The whole family can attend. It's geared towards families. My family and I have enjoyed the times that we've been able to attend that conference. Uh, Both Josh Bice and I will be speaking there, and so would encourage you to check that out. And then also, August 11th through 13th, I'll be teaching a course on theology of worship at Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Conway, Arkansas. If you are considering seminary, if you are considering training for ministry, or even if you just desire to take a course on theology of worship, I would invite you to check out Grace Bible Theological Seminary and that course, August 11th through 13th. I'm really looking forward to that. This is a fantastic seminary, and I would encourage you to check it out. If you haven't seen yet, I had two books come out in February, Biblical Foundations of Corporate Worship, which is a smaller Bible-based book which seeks to articulate biblical principles of corporate worship, and then also Changed from Glory into Glory, The Liturgical Story of the Christian Faith. This is a little longer book, but that traces exhaustively the development of worship from the Old Testament to the present, and so would encourage you to look at that book as well. G3 Press is off and running. We're excited about the books that we have been publishing. Of course, Why Are You Afraid by Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker is doing very well. An excellent book that is encouraging folks around the country and around the world. A a good book for a small group study, uh, simply on the topic of anxiety and fear. encourage you to check it out. And then last month, we published How We May Read Scriptures with Most Spiritual Prophet, a little book by Thomas Watson an excellent little practical book on how to read the scriptures. And then we have opened up pre-orders for a new book called The Conservative Church, Preserving and Transmitting Biblical Christianity by David DeBrain. David is a pastor in South Africa, and this is another fantastic practical book for pastors and for others in churches who need to think carefully about how we are tasked with being, as the church, the pillar and support of the truth, and how we ought to preserve and pass on Christianity into the next generation. So a lot of exciting things happening, and I hope that you'll check them out at g3min.org. Well, if you haven't seen it, at the end of February, I wrote a blog post called Stop Singing Hillsong, Bethel, Jesus Culture, and Elevation, where I made the case that we ought to stop singing that music, not just because of the errant theology of those movements, although that that's certainly a good reason, not just because of some of the scandal, although that's also a good reason, 
but primarily because their music embodies a false theology. And that theology is a Pentecostal theology of worship, what I later describe as a sacramental theology of worship, in contrast to what I call a covenant renewal or reformed theology of worship. And so obviously my audience in those articles is not Pentecostals. My audience is more Reformed Christians, cessationist Christians, who don't adopt a charismatic theology, but nevertheless are worshiping with a charismatic theology. And so I argue that we ought not use that music because that music embodies that theology and therefore transmits that theology to our people. Well, there was a lot of responses I mentioned. The post sort of went viral, and I had two follow-up posts, how music embodies theology and two kinds of worship music. If you haven't read those posts, I'd encourage you to go over to g3min.org, click on the top menu, and you'll find my blog, and you can see those posts. But there's been a lot of good response, a lot of positive comments, but then, of course, a lot of negative comments as well. And I actually didn't originally see a lot of that negative uh, discussion because it was by people that either I don't follow or even had muted. Uh, But friends of mine had screenshotted some of the discussion, and, and I found it helpful to see what other people are saying, maybe some misunderstandings, or in many cases, some misrepresentations of my position. And one of those misrepresentations was that I really just want boring worship, uh, as if the only alternative to avoiding Pentecostal charismatic music in our worship is boring worship. And actually, one screenshot of a Facebook discussion that I saw quoted a tweet that I had posted a while back Uh, and use that as a defense of their claim that I want boring worship. And here's the tweet. I said several months back, if people in your church think your worship is boring, the answer is not to do something to try to make it less boring to them. The answer is to help them recognize that it is not, in fact, boring. So that tweet was quoted, and the person said, see, Annual just wants to intentionally make worship boring. Well, not only is that a misrepresentation of my position, but it it also is a misunderstanding of the whole discussion. That original tweet was stimulated by an excellent book that I highly recommend by Jonathan Landry Cruz, published by Reformation Heritage Books, called What Happens When We Worship. Fantastic book. In fact, I sort of see that book, which came out about a year ago, And my new book, Biblical Foundations of Corporate Worship, as very much working together, similar size, similar perspective, but different angles. Cruz's book argues that in corporate worship, we meet with God, and that shapes us into worshipers, which is the most important thing that we will ever do. So by very definition, worship is not boring. It is a transformational meeting in which we regularly renew our covenant with God, where we are reminded again both of our sinfulness and God's faithfulness to remain true to the promises that he has made to us in Christ. And so in corporate worship, we renew our commitment to obey God's commands, and we enjoy communion with God and with other saints with whom we share union with Christ. Cruz is essentially 
articulating what I, in one of the follow-up blog posts, describe as a covenant renewal theology of worship. This is the theology of worship that I would argue the New Testament teaches, what the early church practiced, what the reformers recovered, and what has been lost largely as a result of revivalism, Pentecostalism, and the church growth movement. And so Cruz's argument in that book is that this understanding of what happens when we worship informs every element of the service, from the call to worship to confession of sin, declaration of pardon, preaching of the word, feasting at God's table, the final benediction, all of these things. And if we recognize that, a thorough understanding of these significant realities that take place every week that we gather for corporate worship, Cruz suggests, should lead us to understand the significance of what we're doing, should lead us to intentional preparation, to heartfelt engagement in the service. The service itself, because of what we're doing, is not boring. We simply need to recognize the nature of what we're doing. And therefore, we won't chase after excitement or entertainment. We won't seek after the the newest, more intense or exciting sort of fads that come along in the church. Rather, we will be satisfied with the biblical simplicity and, in a sense, ordinariness of what we do. But we recognize that this ordinariness, what are sometimes called the ordinary means of grace that God has prescribed in his word, Those things are truly extraordinary because we are meeting with God through Christ in the Spirit by faith. The problem is that as a result first of 19th century revivalism and then a shift in theology as a result of 20th century Pentecostalism, now evangelical churches broadly, even non-Pentecostal churches that have been influenced by those two theologies, chase after more exciting, more energetic sorts of tools, including music, in order to create excitement in the service. That's what I'm saying we ought to avoid. We don't want to use music that simply stirs up the emotions. We ought to seek after worship that helps us renew our covenant with God through Christ, through the gospel, recognizing that this is an extraordinary thing that we are doing, and therefore it by definition is not boring. Now part of the problem is when we discuss this issue of emotion. As part of that claim that I want boring worship, you see things like, well, worship is supposed to be joyful, and indeed it is. Our relationship with God through Christ ought to give rise to joy in our hearts. But the problem is that our understanding of the nature of joy, the understanding of our nature of what we today call emotion, has been so influenced by post-Enlightenment, post-Darwinian evolution theology and philosophy that we're sort of talking past each other when we use that language. Think about it. What exactly is joy? When the New Testament says rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, what are we talking about? When Galatians says that a fruit of the Spirit is joy, what is that? I could say that I experience the emotion of joy when riding a roller coaster. 
That's kind of a thrilling enthusiasm that sends tingles all the way up and down my spine. It's an exhilaration that permeates my whole body. And sometimes we use the word joy to describe that. And then I can also say that I experience joy while worshiping, or I experience joy when I consider my relationship with God through Christ. But is that the same thing? Is what we call joy that comes as a result of riding a roller coaster the same thing as the fruit of the Spirit called joy? You see, when I hear or read a lot of people talk about emotion and worship, I'm convinced that for them, emotion or their understanding of emotion and worship is no different than emotion in other realms of life, except that maybe it's biblically informed and directed toward God. But the, the, the actual nature of the emotion of riding a roller coaster for them and the nature of the emotion that comes from our relationship with God are no different. And I know that they think that because of the illustrations that they use and the comparisons they make. I've heard preachers compare, for example, worship to watching a sporting event. We, we raise our hands, we shout out, we have these exhilarating feelings in support of our sports team. We should have the same thing when we are worshiping. Or I've heard a popular worship author compare worship to watching a movie to make the same argument. For, the, for these people, the quality and character and intensity of certain emotions is no different in worship than in other areas of life. In fact, they use these other activities as models of what our joy should look like in worship as long as we have good biblical doctrine accompanying the emotion. But the problem is, I would argue, that what we call joy in activities like riding a roller coaster, watching a movie, viewing a sporting event, although they're not evil, they're not wrong, they are nothing like spiritual joy. They are not the same thing as the fruit of the Spirit called joy. This was the primary argument that Jonathan Edwards made in The Religious Affections. Edwards argued in that book that absolutely the religious affections are at the core of our biblical Christianity. Christianity is not just an intellectual religion. It is at its core a response of the affections. But he argued biblically, I think rightly so, that religious affections are different than other affections. And they're certainly different from what he in his day called passions, what we might call physical feelings or bodily appetites. And to make this point, Edwards argued that certain physical manifestations, intensity of feeling, excitedness, those sorts of things, are never signs of religious affections. Instead, religious affections are characterized by humility, reasonableness, self-control, tenderness, symmetry, and proportion. And this is why sometimes words are just inadequate to describe emotion. The word joy isn't specific enough to, to really describe the difference between what happens on a roller coaster or what happens in worship. And this is why we use something like music. Music can communicate emotions more subtly in a more nuanced way Music can communicate the difference between the kind of joy experienced on a roller coaster and the kind of spiritual joy that should be experienced in worship. 
And so I would argue again that music that communicates the kind of joy experienced on a roller coaster or at a ball game or at a pep rally doesn't have a place in the worship of God. That's not true spiritual joy. Again, it is a misrepresentation of my position to say that the alternative is that I want boring worship. No, I agree with Edwards and with the scriptures that deep affections are to be encouraged. I agree with Edwards that true religion in great part consists in holy affections. A hearty amen to that. But when I see people talk about our need to have passionate joy in worship, that's where I want to give a caution. Edwards, again, clearly distinguishes, as do New Testament authors, between the affections and the passions, the religious affections and things that are simply physical feelings. It is passion that's largely emphasized today in modern evangelicalism, again, because of the influence of revivalism and the Pentecostal movement. Those physical feelings that are very easily stimulated through artificial means that really overpower the mind. And again, I agree with Edwards that these passions are signs of nothing. They're not evil. They're not bad. I'm not a Gnostic. The body is a good thing. We experience emotions. That's not bad. But those must not be our target. They must not be worked up through artificial means like music, and they must not be defined as the essence of spiritual worship, or even worse in my estimation, God's presence. That's what Pentecostal theology argues. It is that aura, that emotion created through music, that is the evidence of the presence of God. That's what I'm speaking out against. This notion that the very nature of spiritual worship is intense feelings of passion. I, like Edwards, agree that deep affection for God is essential to biblical Christianity. But I also agree with Edwards, who is against sort of enthusiasm. Artificially created emotional enthusiasm. That's the contrast I'm trying to articulate. And again, I think it's important to recognize the emphasis of the New Testament on this. I think it's very instructive when you look at the New Testament, you never see descriptions of spiritual maturity or fruit of the Spirit or qualities to pursue for Christians that in any way approximate the modern emphasis on passion, intensity, enthusiasm, or these sorts of things. Rather, when you look at how the New Testament describes spiritual maturity, you find things like this. Romans 12.3, think with sober judgment. Galatians 5.23, a fruit of the Spirit, self-control. 1 Thessalonians 5, be sober. 1 Timothy 2, women should be self-controlled. 1 Timothy 3, an overseer is to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Deacons are to be dignified and sober-minded. 2 Timothy 1, God gave us a spirit of self-control. It's instructive that 2 Timothy 3 says that the last days will be characterized by lack of self-control. 2 Timothy 4, Paul commands Timothy to be sober-minded. Titus chapter 1, an overseer must be self-controlled and disciplined. 
Titus 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women are to be reverent in behavior. Younger women and younger men are to be self-controlled. Titus 2.12 says we ought to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but be self-controlled. 1 Peter 1.13, therefore preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 2 Peter 1.6, add to your faith self-control and steadfastness. You see, when we consider how the New Testament describes spiritual maturity, it's not this sort of high-octane, intense, passionate intensity. No, it is self-control, gravity, sobriety, dignity, and reverence. That doesn't mean boring. That means that our deeply felt affection for God ought to be characterized by those sorts of things. And so when you read a list like the fruit of the Spirit, and you read a word like joy, it has to be considered in light of those other qualities, those other fruits of the Spirit, like gentleness and peace and self-control. As Jonathan Edwards himself says, quote, Truly gracious affections differ from those affections that are false and delusive in that they tend to and are attended with the lamb-like, dove-like spirit and temper of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, they naturally beget and promote such a spirit of love, meekness, quietness, forgiveness, and mercy as appears in Christ. Gracious affections, Edwards argues, soften the heart and are attended and followed with a Christian tenderness of spirit. I think Edwards is exactly right. Intense feelings are not bad. They're signs of nothing. That's what Edwards meant. But true spiritual maturity, spiritual affections, are characterized by the kinds of qualities that Christ himself evidenced. He was meek and lowly. He was quiet and exhibited mercy and gentleness. Those are the qualities of true spiritual affections. Let me recommend a couple books that articulate these sorts of things rather well. One of my good friends, Ryan Martin, who pastors in Michigan and has a PhD in theology, wrote a book called Understanding Affections in the Theology of Jonathan Edwards, The High Exercises of Divine Love. It was published by T.N.T. Clark, received high praise from Edwards scholars, and Ryan is spot on, and his book is a necessary corrective to the sort of soft, charismatic interpretation of Edwards that is often communicated by men like Sam Storms and John Piper. Ryan shows what Edwards actually was arguing from the New Testament about the nature of religious affections. Ryan also has an article called Violent Motions of Carnal Affections in the Detroit Seminary Journal. You can find that online that is also very helpful. Another really good book that I would recommend is by Thomas Dixon. It's called From Passions to Emotions, 
the creation of a secular psychological category. Dixon traces the change from New Testament and pre-Enlightenment Christian thought on the whole subject we've been talking about to the impact of Enlightenment and Darwinian thinking. Uh, It's a very helpful book. And let me also emphasize here, again, in response to the claim that I want worship that's boring, I am not in the least opposed to things like fervent singing. Anyone who has stood next to me in a worship service knows that I sing with a full voice. But my robust singing, and I would encourage all Christians to sing in a fervent and robust way, ought not to be artificially stirred up by a loud and intense band. Rather, what I'm after is modest, rich, beautiful musical accompaniment that supports the singing And then we ought to absolutely respond with our hearts and our voices to the Holy Spirit as he penetrates our hearts with the word that he inspired. I think that many modern worshipers expect music to do what is properly the work of the Holy Spirit through his word. And so I reject these condescending caricatures of me that some are making that I want to intentionally make worship boring. Far from it, I would actually argue that word-centered, modestly accompanied singing cultivates far deeper and richer affections than the sort of high-octane, emotionally manipulative music of Pentecostal-influenced worship music today. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at g3min.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.